0: Uh, one of the most beloved minor prophets uh, is uh, probably Jonah, wouldn't you say? Has to rank right up there. How, I mean, see, he's probably the minor prophet that we're most familiar with. We kind of know his his uh, his CV, his resume. Uh, you'll recall he was sent to the Ninevites. Ninevites were the sworn enemies of Israel, the Assyrians. So he didn't want to have anything to do with it. You know the story, the fish, the whole thing, but onto the land. On to Nineveh he goes, reluctant prophet, doesn't want them to repent, but he has to preach the message. You're going to be destroyed in three days. And on he goes through there. And then he just parks himself outside of Nineveh, waiting for the wrath of God to come down on them. But he kind of suspects it's not going to happen because those those stinking Ninevites, they actually repented and, uh, and God forgave them. And he's just sour. He's sitting there under the Bean tree or whatever bean plant that was giving him shade, and God sent the worm to kill it, and uh, and then he's just oh, he's just like he's, he's like he's like somebody out in the middle of the afternoon today, you know, with the heat index, and he's just angry at God, and God goes, "Do you do well to be angry?" And God, yes, I, 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 I have every right to be angry, and just just die. I'm so angry, kind of a thing, and God says, "Shouldn't you really have pity?" Shouldn't you really? You had pity on the plant. He says this, And should not I, this is God speaking, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. It's got to be the best ending of any, of any biblical book. Uh, and also much cattle. But, but you see in this the pity of God toward those who are spiritually ignorant. And we also see, in the, as, I, as I explained, you got that sort of reluctant prophet, that person who says he knows God. You know, people like Christians who say they know God, they know Christ, they have salvation. But do we pity the ignorant? There are people, you know, it, it, ignorance sounds like such a harsh word, doesn't it? But you know, if you go to the dictionary, there's different different meanings like one of them's just a put down but then there's also just the plain fact of not knowing something like i just really recently at age like 64 started paying attention to the phases of the moon and, and where it is relative in the sky you know and all that and and i and up till like that age i'd never really paid much attention i mean yeah i saw it'd be a full moon but it was like all at once i i, I kind of got into tracking and seeing where it was in the sky and i thought how did i how did i not know how was i ignorant of this other kinds of ignorance can kill you, like not knowing when the moon was up, was not deadly uh, as far as I could tell, but uh, like not knowing a toadstool from from a mushroom, that that that'll kill you. Like it's for me, it's like I know how to do that. You go to the store and buy the thing marked mushroom, and that's it. That's because ignorance will kill you. What we know as Christians, what we know from Scripture, is ignorance for the unbeliever is not just deadly, it's eternally deadly. It means dying in your sin and departing into hell into a Christless eternity. Ought we not have pity? Ought we not have pity? That's a question. Yeah, we should. We should have pity. Let us have pity upon the spiritually ignorant. That's the big idea today. If you know nothing else when you leave today, it should be at least in your heart that i want to have pity on those that are perishing apart from christ. So we left Paul there at the Areopagus on Mars Hill the philosophers have him cornered they're like hey you want to tell us what this whole thing's about and Paul's like do i do i want to here hold my torah and uh, and and off he goes it says <laughs> so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I'll put that in air quotes. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. Hmm. What therefore you worship as known as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, I personally think Paul is trying to build bridges and be winsome here by saying that they're very religious there's an alternate way of looking at it, and that is the word religious there also meant superstitious. So some people think that he's just walking up and, you know, have you ever seen those competitions where people slap each other in the face? Like he just comes up and like, boom, you know, hits him in the face. You're, you're really superstitious. They wouldn't have liked that. Uh, I don't think that's actually what he means to be saying. I think he's saying, you're, you know, you're very, you're very religious. I'll, give you, I'll give, you, give you credit. You're least looking. You're seeking. You're asking questions. This is a good thing. Truth of the matter is, they really were superstitious, though. I don't think that's what Paul was trying to lead with, but the fact is, why did they have an altar to the unknown God? How many kind of have a flavor, an idea of how the Greek gods were? Greek gods were cranky. They were like humans in, in, their, in their affections and their, you know, and, and, and their mis, uh, 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 other, <laughs> other sort of personality flaws and so forth. So you didn't want to get one angry at you. Is they could just come after you and, t- and have a vendetta against you for forgetting them. So, superstitiously, let's have an altar that says to the unknown god. And if he shows up and says, "Where's my altar?" we go, "What's over there?" Right? I mean, you got it. You've got it covered. Paul spins this in a sense to say, "You're right." You know, you're 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 right for the instinct. Good on you. You don't know who this god is. You're admitting you're ignorant, you don't know, so I am here to set you straight. I'm here to tell you, and he's going to tell them about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to proclaim God's identity. We need to proclaim God's identity. They're ignorant of who God is. They have no notion of it. They, they have all their Greek pantheon of gods and, and, and all sorts of different ideas of, of these, but, but, uh, but they have no true knowledge of the one creator, God, who made everything, etc., which we're going to get into here. And before we go much further, I just want to say that's the world we live in today. When you think about sharing the gospel, one of the biggest impediments is they don't know who God is. You're going to go tell them how they can have a relationship with God. They don't know who God is. God to them is the one that looks at them in the mirror in the morning. That's the one that the universe circles around, it circles around me, right? Right? And you, you know, it's 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 whatever we're worshipping, fame, money, beauty, youth, you you name it. If they have an idea about the one true God, it's vague at best. It's it's sloppy, it's it's yeah, there may be some old doddering, old God, toothless God up there, but I don't think he cares or pays any attention. And, uh, and if he does exist, maybe he's a genie in a bottle that I can get my three wishes from, or maybe it's Gaia, the earth mother, or, or something of that uh, nature. They don't know. Most people, if they do not know Christ, and, and, and of course they don't know God in a relational sense if they don't have Christ, but I'm saying I don't think most of them even have a biblical concept of who God is. And it's important, if we pity them, if we want them to come to Christ, we have to understand that. And therefore, we're going to have to proclaim His identity. First, that He is our Creator. He is the Creator, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Paul says to them, this God that you don't know, this God you're ignorant of, this is the one I proclaim. He created everything. Now, where did Paul get an idea like that? You're like, Jay, come on, man. Like the whole Bible, the whole Torah, the opening chapter, the opening verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that doesn't just mean planet earth and the sky above. It, it, it is, uh, it's a figure of speech called a, a merism, which means God created everything. Everything in the beginning they had this odd notion of capricious gods who who were kind of powerful in one way, but 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 they were also all too human. They could wreak havoc. They, if they favored you, they could you know you could win in battle, and uh, and and that could go well when you go up to the against the Trojans. But on the other hand, they could they could just take a, a, a the exact opposite thing toward you and, and get jealous or whatever. Then you messed with them or something. They don't like your looks, and they could just come after you with a vendetta. What they didn't have was they didn't have an understanding of a god. Above all other things, against the backdrop against which there is no other God. He is uncreated. He is the God who spoke the universe into existence. They have no knowledge. They are ignorant. Does that sound rude? It just means they don't know. Not rude. Not saying that they were... I mean, they were brilliant philosophers, but they were ignorant of that God. Paul says this to the Romans... He says, "'For although they,' and they they doesn't just mean the Athenians, of course, or just the Romans. It means the pagans, the, the, the world without God. "'For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools.'" and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, what they should have known, what they intrinsically knew at the beginning, um, they had lost through their idolatry. What we proclaim, what we unashamedly proclaim when we come and talk to the people about the gospel, people that don't know, first of all, we proclaim a God Who called the universe into existence. This universe was made by Him. Therefore, it belongs to Him. That's a very big God, isn't it? And immediately it starts to raise questions. Like if a person's never thought of God this way. And suddenly they realize, oh, this is the God. And science, by the way, is, is finding more and more reason to believe this. Science used to believe. For hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. Science believed that the universe had just always existed. The eternal existence of matter. And now scientists know that's not true. They resisted the Big Bang Theory when it came along because it implied that the universe came into being and they didn't want to have that because that implies God. And now they've looked at it and not only is there that, but there's all these fine-tuning things that that we're seeing in nature that just defy odds to just happen the way they just happen. And so everything is pointing to a a God who this universe belongs to Him. He is uncontainable. Verse 24, Paul says, He does not live in temples made by man. This God, the God that we're talking about, is big. <laughs> How big is He? It, he's so big that not, not only is He in and through and around and, and everywhere present in this universe, omnipresent, but at the same time, He's also beyond the universe. He's utterly and totally transcendent, and he's uncontainable. You can't put him in a little box. You see, that's what people want to do. The people you're going to share the gospel with, if they believe in God, they have God in a box. And your first goal here is to kind of show them God and bring him out of the box and show them that they never had him in the box to begin with. Yeah? Isn't that true? I mean, Solomon. Solomon built a temple. You're like, well, if temples are so wrong, Jay, why did God instruct them to build a tabernacle and then the temple that followed in its pattern? Look at what Solomon says when they dedicated it. But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, and that means beyond the universe as we see it, even highest heaven cannot contain him. Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings to him? Like, we're not containing God in here. We're not trapping him. We're just, this is our place where we're going to worship that God. But we can't, we can't contain him. The problem with idols and temples, well, other than the fact that God just strictly forbade us to do that, the problem is that it, it, it does that thing that we humans like to do where we diminish God. We don't like things that are bigger than us. We don't, think, we don't like things that we can't grasp and comprehend. And so, from, from ages past, what men and women did was they tried to make God small so that they could understand and contain and control Him. It's like, it's naive. Do you realize how naive that really is? How juvenile and ignorant it is to think that you can take the eternal God and kind of reduce Him in that way? It's like... It's like the naivete of a of a of a fifth grader that takes his volcano with him to, to the science fair. You know, what do you got there, Jimmy? Oh, I got a volcano. That's really cool. I got, you got a red light that my dad put in, and and it, you know, it's like, sorry, Jimmy, that unless that thing is capable of spewing, you know, you know, red hot lava and ash and poison gas, you know, at eighteen hundred degrees Fahrenheit and kill an entire city, it's not really a volcano. Sorry, it's, not, it's an image of a volcano. It's an idea, it's a concept. God cannot be reduced to that. God is uncontainable, and that is a lesson. Before we can share the gospel, people have to see that. They have to know who they're... This is the God that we're trying to come back into relationship with. Yeah. God is self-sustaining. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life, and breath, and everything. So God's done what? Created the world, created life, created us, given us everything. And what does God need from us? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. There's a very, very, do you like, you guys like fancy words, right? I would just pass over, but I know you're sitting here dying to to learn a new jargon word, but this is this is the worst kind of theological jargon because you'll never use it in a sentence. Um, it's the word "aseity." Aseity. We're speaking of the aseity of God, meaning God is not dependent on anything outside of Himself. Not. For his existence, he is uncreated. Uh, Nobody gives him anything that that he has need of. God doesn't wake up in the morning and have to take that multivitamin pill that you've been taking lately since you hit 50. Um, Doesn't have to eat a can of spinach before he does a miracle. There is nothing that God needs whatsoever. Now, depending on what kind of a church background you've been raised in, you may be sitting here thinking, but pastor... You know, God needs me. He needs my love. Doesn't He? Does He? Doesn't, 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 God, d- doesn't God need me? Doesn't He need my hands and feet? I've been told God doesn't have hands and feet. I've got to be His hands and feet. God doesn't have any. He needs me. Yeah, no. That's just bunkum. That is, I mean, that is so not script. God delights in using us for His purposes. God delights. In allowing us to worship Him. God delights that that through faith we are united to Him through Christ. But God doesn't need any of that. It is utterly and totally by His mercy and His grace. God doesn't need a thing. It's like the ultimate Father on Father's Day. How many of you have heard commercials for Father's Day these last uh, couple weeks? One of the common things that they say in these is, For the Father who has everything. And ladies, you know why that phrase is true, right? For the father who has everything. Because if he wants something, he just goes out and buys it. Right? Am I right? Yeah, he doesn't need anything. He's already bought it for himself. I mean, we're men are selfish, so we, we kind of already have the toys that we want. For the, but God is that ultimate father who has everything. There is nothing that you bring him that God goes, Wow, that was the one thing I really absolutely needed. When we bring him worship, it's like that little kid, you know, bringing to their mother or father the little macaroni thing. Oh, hey, honey, this is just what I needed. Yeah, you needed it. You, need, you delight in it. You delight in that relationship. But you didn't need it. God doesn't, God doesn't need these things. So what does that do with bargaining? What does that do with bargaining with God? Because understand that the people you pity that you share with they bargain with God routinely. They've already probably bargained with Him a dozen times in the past. Maybe they are in a foxhole. I don't know. There weren't really a lot of foxholes in Vietnam or, or uh, Iraq, but, uh, but you, you get my drift. They're, they're there on the battlefield, and they go, God, hmm, I've got something you need here. i got my soul and my service, so you get me out of here, I'll serve you. And that's a mistaken idea, right? Like, God is small, and God is, God is a God that, that has a lot of needs, so I'll bargain with Him. If God answers that prayer, it's not because He needed your service. It's because God is gracious. He created mankind. It says, that He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face, all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. Now, the first half of that states that God created man. Once again, this is taking us back to the opening chapters uh, of Genesis. For people to understand the gospel, they have to understand anthropology. Yeah? What's the anthropology, class? The study of anthropos. Man, right? Mankind mankind. So, so, for people to come to the gospel, they have to understand who they are. How do they exist within the universe? And the problem is, all of this foolish mind being darkening, darkened stuff and all of that, as, as human beings, as sentient creatures, they look at the universe and they conclude by what they observe in nature that all of the universe is circling around them. That's the natural place for the human heart to be apart from God is to think it all revolves around us. And we get our noses out of joint if the world isn't going the way we think it should because the universe owes me something. That's If you look at the secular world and you watch movies, and you there, there, there's this idea, oh, if there's a God, he must be mean because he hasn't given me everything I've asked for. I didn't get the fame. My brother got the fame. I didn't get the, I didn't get the the the, the ladies, and then somebody else got those, and then I just came up short at everything. And how dare God not realize that this universe exists for my pleasure? And so they're 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 mad at God, or they turn God into the opposite. Like, oh, God is the God there that's there to make me happy. When I need to be happy. I take my happy God pill. I go to pray a prayer or whatever and, you know, things maybe work out and I think, oh, that's once again. So all of these things have us as the gravitational center of the universe. The truth is God made man. God is in control. God determines these things. That can shape what we imagine God to be, you know. If God is all that we've said God is, then he is the creator of this universe and our creator in, in the first man, Adam. And then who owes whom, what to whom at that point? If God is the creator and God created us and he gives us everything we have need of, who to whom is what owed? It's not about us it's about what we owe to him. Second half of verse 17. I'm really trying to move quickly here. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He is the sovereign sustainer of this universe. God created it all and he has determined times and places for the nations. What's Paul getting at here? He's saying to the Athenians, you you idol worshipping Athenians, you know, God, the reason you're here in Greece, in Macedonia, the reason this is, this is the way it is is because the God who made the universe is providentially directing things in such a way that you have a people and a place to live according to God's pleasure. The Athenian Greeks had their allotted space. Great Bend people have their place. Kansans have their place. Is that, a fair, is that fair to say based on the text? Isn't that what what it's saying? It's saying the God who made everything, that he appointed times and places on the whole face. I'm going to do this and not this because I'm not part of the flat earth society. On the whole face of the planet, on the whole face of the earth, God appointed their times. And so why are you here today? Why are you in Great Bend, Kansas? It's because this is in God's perfect sustaining work in the universe and his providence. That is where God has you. How does this relate to the gospel? Well, on the one hand, it shows us that God is not disinterested in humanity. It's not a deistic view. Like, I don't know. The deists were big a couple hundred years ago, but there's still people around us. that are basically deists. Deists believe that God created the universe. You've heard this description a hundred times probably, but he made it like a watch. He wound it up and he set it aside and the laws and so forth were working. And he just stood back and went, well, let's see what happens, you know? And he, just, and he just remained un, uninvolved. The God of the Bible has, has f- fashioned the world and he directs all things. He down to the point of, of where the nations are. And there will be a... De- that, that, that's good news because if he's, if he's in control of all those things, it means there's not a people on the planet of which there will not be those who come to know him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if we read the whole book and we get to the book of Revelation, we know that it is God's will, that there will be a day when dressed in white, there will be all of these who stand before the throne from every tribe and, 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 and kindred and tongue, and they, and they will praise God, they will praise the Lamb as sits on the throne. That is, that is part of the gospel that they have to understand. Next, he's Imminent. Imminent. Now, there's three different imminents in, uh, in the English language spelled three different ways. Uh, this imminent is probably different than what you usually use. So, if you're sitting there going, wow, that's spelled wrong, it's spelled right for what it is. Um, imminent is the opposite of transcendent. transcendent. Thank you, Matt. It's the opposite of transcendent. You know, transcendent is what we've been talking about up till now, where God is. Big, everything, boom, boom, boom. We, we've kind of come down from transcendence to where he's directing the nations, but he's still way up there, isn't he? Eminent, though, speaks of God's nearness. I, I had a friend that would pray a lot. Uh, when he would pray out loud, he would say, God, you sit on high, but you stoop low. You sit on high, transcendent, but you stoop low. You're imminent. He says, Paul says, that they should seek God. He's talking about those nations that God has given times and places to. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That, by the way, is a quote from a a Greek uh, that Paul inserts there. In him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And this is cool, you know the guy they called the seed picker, Paul, not only does he know the God that they know nothing about, but he even is able to quote to them from their own poets. And he and he affirms part of what their what their poets and philosophers have said. The God who made it all, he is he is he does sit high, but he stooped low. He is near to us. He's near to everyone who seeks him. And that is an inherent and important truth within the gospel. We, if, if, if we don't believe that God is near to those who seek Him, if we don't believe that God made the nations and, in, and intends to save out of the nations a people unto Himself, then, then we, don't, we don't have any place to stand to deliver the gospel. We could, we could draw a, a wrong conclusion from this text. If left alone, we could assume that, oh well if God said that they are all relatively near, and if they seek Him, they'll find Him, then we could, we could think that what He means to say here is that all of the nations, apart from the Gospel, apart from the God of the Bible, that they're all okay. And that they're just going to, you know, find a different route, and they're going to get there by saying, no, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul isn't, Paul isn't saying you're excused from, from the God of the Scripture or from what He is owed or, or from the Gospel. He's He's giving the foundation. He's laying a foundation to say, yes, God is not so far away. And in fact, I'm going to deliver to you the message of how you can come into that relationship, that restored relationship with him. Okay, the second big point is this. Proclaim their necessary response. Their necessary response. Um, Have pity on them and call them to respond. They must repent of ignorant theology that's first and foremost they must repent of ignorant theology theology being what we hold true to be hold to be true about god they need to come to a right knowledge they need to abandon lies that they've believed what paul says being then god's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed from the art and imagination of man The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. What are they repenting of in the first instance here, according to Paul? How they think about God. How they think about God. We ought not to think, he says. Not think, period, at the end of the sentence, but it it goes to the thought process. The Athenians loved nothing more than thinking. They were addicted to thinking, like, like you're addicted to TikTok. They just sat around all day saying, hey, who's got a latest thought? Somebody got a new angle on this thing? That's why they had Paul there. They, did, they didn't know they were going to get the gospel. They're just like, hey, let's think something new. And Paul's like, okay, think this for a moment. You're thinking all wrong. You're, you're wrong. You've thought of God. Your whole conception of God is completely backward. You need to repent of that. When it says that God overlooked these things, it doesn't mean that he forgave them. It means that he forestalled ultimate judgment. The book of Lamentations says that it's God's kindness that we are not consumed. He said that of his Old Testament people. How much truer was that of all of the nations? Paul's like, God's given you grace. God's given you mercy. You're still here. You're still here. You're still capable of hearing these words concerning the truth. You're going to hear the gospel from me. God is a gracious God. But God is not some God that you you can stick in a temple or manipulate like a papier-mâché volcano. Remember what we said about repentance, by the way? I want to just clarify something about repentance in the book of Acts, and well throughout the whole Scripture, repentance and faith are two halves of the same thing. They're like two sides of the same coin. We can the biblical writers could use the word repent to mean just repentance, but they could also mean it to, to use it to mean the entirety of conversion, and they could use faith in the same way or belief. So we can say that we are saved by a believing kind of repentance or a repenting kind of belief. If you will. But the command to repent is not just turning over a leaf, it, a new leaf. It's not just what the Ninevites experienced in their limited understanding. It includes the notion of turning away from idolatry and turning in faith to the God who made us and to his Son Jesus Christ. When Paul is explaining what he did with the Thessalonians, he writes to them, he said, and how you turn to God from idols. That's repentance. The root idea of repentance is turning. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And in Acts chapter 20, the specificity is even greater. He says, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a two-step thing. It's a one-step thing that is, yeah, sort of a whole that involves repentance and faith. So, with pity and passion, tell them this. i got to get a drink. Stop thinking stupid things about God. That's a good conversation starter. I'm just here to tell you, you need to stop being stupid. You could try that. I don't know if that's the best way. But they're in ignorance, and somehow, within what you tell them, however God leads you, whether, whether you soft-pedal it or whether it's one—sometimes God just tells you to, you know, and I, I don't mean like audibly, but sometimes you're just like, yeah, I'm just going to smack them in the face on this deal, and that's just how it's going to be because that's what they need, but they need the truth. They need to, they need to be disabused of the lie. A lie concerning God. And then, finally, they need to know the true judge of mankind. So the Greeks had a vague, sketchy idea of uh, the afterlife, but it was not biblical. It was not a biblical view. Uh, they, this is what Bach, in his commentary, says. There's sort of three views that the Greeks had about the afterlife. Quote, Greeks believed either in a complete extinction of the body and soul, in an afterlife in Hades or the limited immortality of the soul. One point all these Greek views shared is that the body is not restored in any form. Got it? So they could could accept maybe, some of them, the idea that there could be some sort of vague, shadowy, spiritual thing that's happening and sort of existing like a ghost or something afterward. But that was it. They They didn't have the idea of the resurrected body. Here's what Paul then says. And, and Paul just like, this is just like, uh, you know, in one of those war movies and naval battles where the one ship's been, you know, the rudder, it's gone out and it's smoking and it gets broadside. And then the un- unharmed battleship of the enemy just comes up and just, yeah, you know, that's that scene. No. Okay. Just me. Okay. Um, here's what Paul says, because he he's telling them about God, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So most of them there could not fathom what he was saying to them. He's telling them that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. What God? Did, what that doesn't happen in our world. Well, it did. The Jews didn't want to believe it either. They didn't really picture a resurrection happening before the final resurrection at the end uh, uh, of time. But but this it, it blew all categories. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's our proof because the tomb is empty and God has has appointed Jesus that he would be the judge of all men. Do you realize how just mind-blowing this had to be? How unacceptable this had to be? What? I don't believe in resurrection, but you're telling me not only did God resurrect someone, but he's going to resurrect us unto a judgment in front of that man whom he resurrected from the grave. And from that he gets to the gospel. Isn't it amazing, even with the fact that, that some mocked him and this, that this so broke their categories, that even then the gospel got through and there were people who came to faith through that. And I think that's, that, that has to just be our outlook if we pity them. We're going to expect someone to mock us. If you share the gospel, you're going to have some people mocking you. It's just going to happen. Anybody anybody have a 100% batting average on your sharing the faith? People always just like, hey, yeah, yeah. You've convinced me, buddy. (laughs) No. You're going to have people mock you. You're going to have people go, eh, I don't know. You're going to have people turn away because you're blowing their worldview. I hope throughout this sermon the one thing you've gotten is that what we believe as Christians concerning who God is and, and and how amazing the thought is that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he is the judge of the living and the dead and that in him and in him alone there is salvation, this this rocks people's world. But when you tell it, when you pity people and you share it, that's when people hear. Somebody maybe by the name of Damaris or Dionysius or Clyde or I don't know who you're talking to. But they hear it, have pity on them. We, it is up to us to have pity, to preach, and to trust God. So if you're here today and you're an Athenian Greek in this story, I, I get that this challenges you and that, that it doesn't fit your categories. But here's the thing, you need to see. You need to see your ignorance, and I'm not faulting you that you're ignorant. We were all blind and and, and dead to the gospel, and we didn't know, but there is a God, a God who called this universe into existence, and He didn't just wipe His hands at that moment. He continued to be engaged in that world, and, and He provided, and everything you have, every breath you take is a gift from that God. And if you understand that, it it doesn't take much logic to reason your way to the fact that if he is that kind of a God, then I owe him glory, I owe him love, I owe him obedience. Oops, I haven't given him any of those things. Not to the point that he would deserve. And he declares that there is a day, a day coming, a day of judgment. You need to hear that. You need to see the person of Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior of the world who died for sinners, you need to repent of all of your wrong thinking and all of your wrong worship of all of your sin and turn and believe in Jesus Christ. And we would just, we would just say, have pity on yourself. Have pity on yourself. You've not known your right hand from your left hand. You've been without God. You've been without hope have pity on yourself, turn to Jesus, be saved.